If you all will now take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 9. Psalm 9. I'm going to invite Jason Lynn to do our scripture reading for us this morning. So stand together as we give attention to the reading of God's Word in Psalm 9. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name almost high. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me, O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made, in the net that they hid. Their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. Let's pray together. Our God, we gather together as a people created by You and for Your purposes, a people bought by the blood of Your Son. So we come to Your Word this morning and we ask that You would reveal Yourself again to us. We come to behold You. We come to know You, to understand and believe in, in Your character and Your nature so I pray that you would guide us into this psalm, these words written by David so long ago that have been a guide and a reminder for your people for so long. So remind us again this morning of your goodness, of your power, of your majesty. Remind us of your absolute love for us. Let us know your heart for sinners. And let us leave here just with hearts that are drawn to worship you and love you because you have so loved us. We thank you. We ask that you would guide us into truth this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can have a seat. Last week, Aaron challenged us in, in Psalm chapter 8 to uh, look at the stars, to consider our place 
amidst all this world that God has made and the vastness of creation to, to reflect on, on who we are and how God cares for us. And so we tried to take that to heart. And last week after the gathering, family and I, we, we headed up to Grand Lake and uh, camped out for a couple nights. And the, one of the beautiful things about camping out, especially when you can't have a fire, is that the stars are really bright. And so uh, we were able to kind of even highlight that and talk about that just briefly with our kids. But as, as we were out there camping and just looking up at the stars and just seeing just, just the, the, the glory that is the sky, it was just awesome just to kind of sit there and start thinking about, you know, the stars, just how awesome they are. Um, but it also got me thinking about how we've looked at the stars and studied the stars for so long and, and humans have, have actually begun to see the stars as useful, as helpful. And uh, we've, we've, we've come a long way in our study and our understanding of the stars. We started off in kinda, with kind of like basic elementary terms. We just started drawing pictures up there, right? You know, kind of creating these constellations, you know, which, you know, if we're honest, none of them actually look like the things that, that they're projected, right? Like, I'd love to meet whoever, like, you know, found these things up there. Like, take Cassiopeia, for instance. It's basically like five stars. looks like a W, I think. But somebody's like, hey, it looks like a lady in a dress. And everybody else is like, Sure, okay, I got it. Kind of like when my four-year-old son brings me a picture, and it's like just scribbles, and it's like, what is it? It's like, ah, it's a dragon. Oh, yeah, sure, I, I can see it. So uh, that's kind of what these constellations are. They're just these, 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 these connected dots up there. I don't actually look like anything. Maybe the Big Dipper, which actually I guess is supposed to be a bear, but I think it's, let's stick with Big Dipper. It looks a little more like a spoon than a bear. So uh, we'll stick with that. But... Uh, we moved on from just kind of seeing these, these pictures up in the stars to kind of actually recognizing, studying their movements and looking at them. We began to see them as actually really helpful. We actually realized that we could actually guide ourselves by, by tracking them. And for, for centuries, the, the stars have been used as a source of direction and guidance. And one star in particular, Polaris as it's been named, has been really invaluable to guiding and directing both, you know, boats on the ocean and other, other means of navigation. And you probably know this from just basic elementary school, is the reason why Polaris, otherwise known as the North Star, is so helpful is because that from our vantage point, it doesn't move. It remains fixed in its position. While, while all the other stars seem to move as the Earth rotates, this star is actually positioned directly north of the Earth's axis, and so it appears as though it stays in one place. We actually, I actually have a picture that kind of illustrates this and shows this for us, um, where people have taken these time-lapse photos of the sky at night, and you begin to, be, begin to see these other stars as everything else kind of moves and rotates and creates this blur around. At the center of that is Polaris, the North Star, that holds its position and only because it is constant, it is stable, it is always there in that place, can it actually act as a reliable guide to us. And as we have looked at, at these, these first nine psalms over the summer, most of which have been attributed to David, we've, we've seen David over and over again kind of pour out his heart, reveal his struggles how, how the, in, the, in the face of opposition, when confronted with personal attacks, when he's up against maybe a hopeless situation, even facing moments of depression and doubt, 
We've seen how David has time and time again turned his mind and his heart toward these unchanging truths about God. And these things have served him as as fixed and unchanging points of guidance for him in his life. And I think when we approach Psalm 9, it's that same thing that we see David drawing on these steady, unchanging realities of who God is. And he looks to this fixed point that is God as a steady and consistent guide in his life in the midst of a a world that seems to maybe be spinning out of control. And so as we approach this psalm, the question is, what what do you have as like an anchoring point in your life? That which is fixed and immovable, which you can depend on. I think as we begin to read and reflect on the psalms, we see that, that if it is anything other than God himself, then it has the tendency to move, to shift to maybe take us off course. And so we see that throughout this psalm, David, not unlike his other psalms, he he continues to recount both who he knows God to be and what God has done. And so this morning, I I, I simply want us to, to look to see who God is. The thing about this text and this sermon is that it's probably nothing incredibly new. For you if, you, if you've read your Bible, if you've come to church, I don't have these just amazing, you know, new insights on all, the, all of this. This is truths that have been declared to God's people time and time again that we once again go to, to look at, to remind ourselves again and again and again, to see who God is. And then too, with David, kind of, kind of look to see how David draws on his understanding of God to actually empower him to face difficult times. And so when you read this psalm, I, th- I think you should be struck by the absolute certainty and the permanence that is God himself. We see in this that he is not one who is shaken. He is not one who is moved. He is who he is. Is that your vision of who God is? The writer A.W. Tozer has said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And the thing is that, that our image of what we see in our mind of who God is is shaped by a lot of things. Our experiences, our ups and downs in life, maybe it's scripture and things we've heard, things we want God to be. We all have, a, have, a, have an image of, of God that's been created by a lot of different things. And sometimes we can actually struggle to understand and, and, and embrace how God reveals Himself in Scripture. We tend to project our own kind of human characteristics onto God as if He's just kind of a better version of us. And yes, we are made in God's image. We reflect imperfectly some attributes of God, but God is completely other than us. We recognize that as, as, as people, we are growing, we are changing, we are learning, and not so with God. He cannot be improved upon in Himself. He is the very definition of perfection. And at times when we go to the Scriptures to understand and know who this God is, we will encounter things that don't sit well with us. And we may begin to question, is God really like that? 
I'm not sure I, I resonate with that perspective of God. Perhaps you've heard someone say, well, I, I like to think of God like this. Or from a, maybe a more skeptical person would say, well, I, I can't believe in a God who would do such and such or who is like that. And the thing is, God is not changed by our perception of Him, how we conceive of Him to be. God is who He is. And to understand Him, we have to go to His Word to, to, to understand how He has revealed Himself. You see, we don't simply get to piece together the kind of God that we want, as though God has presented Himself to us as kind of a buffet of attributes that we get to pick from. And at times, who God is and how He acts will confront us in rather uncomfortable ways. And that's probably good for us. I think it was Tim Keller who said that if your God never disagrees with you, then you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. And so here in, in this psalm, David again begins to declare who he knows God to be and what God has done and what he, what he anticipates that God will do. And these serve as these, these anchoring and fixed points for him. So I think there's just simply three kind of images that David highlights in here and gives us kind of how God acts in this way. He starts by declaring that God is the forever king. He's a forever king. After declaring his commitment to praise in the first couple verses, which we'll come back to that, he describes God as just this unstoppable force. Nothing can stand in his way. When he shows up, his enemies uh, stumble and they flee and they are destroyed before him. He's a powerful king. And then David over and over declares words like this in verse 4. It says, you sat on your throne giving righteous judgment. In verse 7, he says, the Lord sits enthroned forever. In verse 11, it tells us that the Lord sits enthroned in Zion. Forever is a long time. A long time for someone to rule as king. I looked up this week who the longest reigning monarch was. And a little bit of debate over one guy that might have been a king for a little bit longer, but he didn't really hold true power. But the longest real true reigning monarch is recognized as Louis XIV. Ruled for 72 years. Which, little caveat is, he started when he was like four years old, which like, I don't know how many four-year-olds we want ruling empires, but uh, Louis, Louis got to do it apparently. So, 72 years though. So, that's a long time. Think about it. Um, but that's the best we could do. That's the best any human king could hold reign for. 72 years. But David declares that God is king forever. Nations rise, kingdoms come, kingdoms go over and over again in an endless cycle of history, but our God is king forever. He's not just a king in, in title, something we ascribe to him that doesn't actually have ruling power, but he is sovereign over everything. Nothing can stand against his rule. This is what David declares over and over. Anyone who, who comes against him is destroyed. Aaron kind of touched on this last week, that the idea of a monarchy and, and this kind of sovereign rulership is hard for us as Americans to grasp because we value kind of individual representation, right? And 
uh, freedom of, of the individual. We get a vote. But do you, do you recognize God as the sovereign king over even your life? He's not just there to give mere counsel to you and help you along, but He is the one who claims the rule and reign over you and over this whole world. And for David, that gives him hope. But as this powerful ruler and king, sometimes he can feel like just this this, this power-hungry ruler, but David declares how he acts as this king. He says that he is one who defends the innocent. He goes to battle for his people. In these first few verses, verses 5 and 6, we, we see this image of a divine warrior. It says that he rebuked the nations. It's this idea of a, a battle cry that goes out that paralyzes his enemies. They then run in chaotic retreat. And in his battle, he wipes them out. He removes their memory. His language describing this complete removal of those who come against God, but, he, but he's doing it not just out of spite, but, but out of a protection of the innocent and a care for his people. God is this powerful king who confronts the wicked and who rules over all. David then gives us this next image of God as the final judge. This theme of justice is littered throughout this this whole psalm. As you try to read between kind of the lines of what David is facing, I mean, apparently there's, there's forms of injustice, even slander against him, wrongful opposition that he's up against. And over and over again, what does he do? He appeals to the righteous justice of God. And David is reminding himself that amidst everything that's going on, against everything that he sees that's out of place, that, that, that needs to be fixed, needs to be corrected, he recognizes that behind and above it all sits one who understands it all, sees the complexity of it all, one whose standard of right and wrong is fixed in and of himself, that he is not surprised by the ravages of injustice, he is not shaken by it, it is not out of his control, because one day this judge will see a day of reckoning. He will sort it out. And this is this image and this, this view of God that David reminds himself of. You know, Christianity is oftentimes criticized of kind of being on the wrong side of history. And we just kind of need to get with the program and kind of capitulate to, you know, kind of the trajectory of, of culture and society and where things are going because we don't want to get left behind and be kind of on the wrong side of history. And Psalms like this and the view of God as this ultimate final judge is a reminder to us that it doesn't matter whether we're on the right side of human history, but whether we are on the right side of God's redemptive history. But the idea of God as a judge is sometimes hard for us to stomach, right? To kind of see. He kind of is a harsh picture of just this, this kind of one who is handing out punitive judgment as though he's just an uptight cosmic police. But the language used in Scripture to describe him as a judge is one who who judges in righteousness. From his throne, he gives righteous judgment. Verse 7, his rule is, is characterized by justice, by uprightness, by that which is right and correct. And that's good news because he's not just a power-hungry tyrant, 
but he's a gracious and righteous king that wants to enact justice in his kingdom. He goes on to say he's one who avenges blood, meaning that he holds people accountable. Nobody wants a judge who just lets the guilty go and just lets them off. We recognize that a judge has to determine that a wrong has been been committed. Their job is to assure that, that it is corrected. Verse 16, he is one who has made himself known and he executes judgment. This theme repeats over and over and over again. He is a righteous and just judge that will act. The third image that David gives us is that of God as a stronghold. God is a stronghold for the oppressed in verse 9. A place of safety. For those who find themselves attacked, beaten down, and broken, God is a refuge and a place of safety for them. And it is actually His his strength, His position as King that actually allows Him to provide an actual place of safety. He is powerful to actually provide protection. And as this stronghold to His people, we see God acting in that he remembers. In verse 10, it says, He has not forsaken those who seek him. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. He does not forget the needy, but he provides for the hope of the poor. In verse 18, God remembers those who seek him. He has not abandoned them, and he is always a place of safety and refuge for those who will run to him. And these images and these these truths that David is declaring over and over to himself and ultimately to Israel through this song, these these things become for him a stable guide, even though he, he doesn't understand why things look the way they look in the world, why he's facing the things he's facing. And so for us, as, as we read these things, as we try to enter into this image of who God is, to remind ourselves of these things. We, along with David, have to wrestle with what does that actually produce in our lives? What does that actually call us to do? I think there's just four simple things that that a view of God like this, that, that fixing our eyes on this fixed person, the immutable, unchanging person of God as our king, as our judge, as this stronghold for us, will do in our lives is that it will produce these responses. Number one, very simply, that we lean on God's steadfast strength. Have you actually experienced God as a stronghold? Have you been through difficulty, through challenge and struggle and actually experienced Him there to support you, to stabilize you while everything else is falling apart? When trouble shows up, when that unexpected phone call arises, where do you turn? What is your anchor? What is your fixed point? that you look to for guidance, when everything seems to be coming unraveled, do you actually believe that God is is strong and, and steadfast, unchanging, and there for you to lean on? For David, this is where he kept going back. He continued to to call himself back to this. And the reason this is so repetitive is because the tendency is to always, for us, to to lean on other things, to look to other things, other relationships, 
other avenues for support, for stability, we are always prone to lean on something else. But all of those things are shifting. All of those things are moving. It may find support for a season, whether that's a a good job that you have, a stable uh, income, whether that's a relationship that you have that you're holding on to. But times may come where those things are, are, are turned over. But David's call is that, that God is the only one who provides a safe and reliable stronghold in a place in which he can confidently lean time and time again. The second thing that he calls us to is that, that we relinquish control to God's faithful care. As I wrestled with what's really the heart of this psalm, like what's really the, what, what is David really getting at? What is he calling himself to? I, I think more and more I began to see that he's ultimately getting to the point of, of seeking to, to call himself to let go of his desire to control. He's faced with all sorts of things that are out of his control, things that he can't direct. And so he calls on God to act in his behalf, but in this he is, he's, he's saying, God, I want to entrust myself to you. I want to actually believe these things about you and commit myself to you. In verse 4, he says, God, you have maintained my just cause. The language here is, is, is one of, of a lawyer or a, a defender, somebody who's going to come in and advocate for him. He knows that God is going to be the one to defend him. And if he knows that, then he's basically saying, God, I don't, I don't have to argue my case. I don't have to fight all these enemies and come up against them. I don't have to vindicate myself. I don't have to, have to you know, retaliate against those who have come against me. But God, I can actually just entrust myself to you because you will stand in my place and defend me. Can you resonate with that? Or maybe you have been attacked. Maybe you have been misrepresented either by a coworker or by a friend, a family member. Maybe your words you feel like have been twisted and you've been made to, to look in a certain way. And you, want to, you just want to vindicate yourself. You want, to, you want to argue about it or you want to get back at that other person and kind of return in kind that same thing. Maybe that's the, the, the cycle even in your own relationships and your marriage of constantly trying to get back. But, but, but do, you, do, we, do we actually believe that God is a just and a faithful one to which we can entrust ourselves to Him knowing that He will fight for us. He will vindicate us. He knows what happened. He knows what was said. He knows our heart. Is He actually one that you can actually commit to? And if you want to highlight any verse in this psalm, verse 10 just stands out as kind of the the pivotal, pivotal point, I think, for David. Where he says, those who know your name... To know God's name is not merely just knowing about Him or knowing these things. It's the language used of intimately knowing. It is what Israel was called to be. A people under God's rule and reign. He was their God. Those who know God, who know Yahweh, His character, what He has done, who has seen Him act time and time again, those who know Him, it says, put their trust in Him. Those who know your name put their trust in you. This isn't just a, a blind trust rooted in just kind of this hope that, that this deity can kind of help out. 
but it's rooted in a, a deep understanding of what God has done, how He has shown and proven His character over and over again. For one who knows God to be a good and righteous king, a just judge, and a place of safety, then the response is to entrust ourselves to Him because He has not forsaken those who seek Him, as David says in verse 10. God hasn't forgotten us in our struggle. Those who seek Him, those who are afflicted, those who are the needy, those who are the poor, we see that God's heart is for them. And if you ever doubt that, if you ever question that, like that describes all of us in some way. We are the needy ones. We are the broken. We are those who are afflicted in every way by the ravages and brokenness of the world and the sin of our own lives. And if we ever doubt and question whether God actually has forsaken us, we have to remember that's why He sent Jesus. So He sent His Son to redeem us, to rescue us, to unite us to Himself to take our sin upon Himself, to provide a means of forgiveness and restoration, to bring reconciliation so that we could be with Him. I've been slowly working my way through this, this uh, book that we, we were given out to everybody. I don't know if we have any more left, but Gentle and Lowly. Hopefully many of you have gotten that, been able to read some of that book. It's just been awesome where, where, where it just helps kind of get into the, the heart of, of, of God's love and His care for sinners and for, for, for broken people. And just one simple line that stuck out to me says, when God sends Jesus to save us, it says that He doesn't just want us to be forgiven, He wants us. He doesn't just want us to be forgiven, but He actually wants us. You see, God is, is not like one who, who stops on the side of the row when, when we have a flat tire and just offers some help to kind of put us back together and get, get us on our way. But he's more like a, like a father who sees his child out in the road with a car barreling down on him who runs out there and grabs him and rescues them and holds them tight as though he cannot lose them, he wants to keep them with him. This is God's heart for us in the gospel that he, that he sends his son not merely just to grant us pardon, but to unite us and invite us to be his own. That's the beauty of the gospel. Do you know that to be true, that God invites you to, to find rest in Him, not just the forgiveness of your sin, but a place of refuge and a place of hope, a place of stable dependence for every aspect of your life? Do you believe that God can handle what you're going through, that He's actually aware of it, He sees it? Can you entrust yourself and your circumstances actually into His care because He's already declared to you that He loves you and He wants to provide for you? And in the moment of trouble, do you speak these truths to yourself? That's what David is doing. He's declaring these, these same basic foundational truths of Christianity that we've confessed for thousands of years over and over again. Because in the moment, we, we tend to drift, we tend to doubt. And when we doubt that God can handle it, that He knows what's going on, that, that He actually has a plan and a purpose in those things, we then 
try to start fighting for control. We begin to take over and think that we have a better way. We have to fix the situation. We have to get back and and enact justice. We have to atone for things. But the thing about control is that once you have it, you have to maintain it. And that can be incredibly exhausting. Many of us have spent our whole lives just, just trying to maintain control of, of everything in our lives and create an image of ourselves or whatever it may be when God invites us just to cast it onto Him, to relinquish control to His faithful care. He's strong enough to handle it. He knows how to, how to vindicate you, how to work in your life and bring about restoration. He can provide a place of safety for you. David then calls us, I think, to hope confidently in God's certain justice. This is a theme often repeated on David's songs over the last few weeks. He's longing for God to enact justice around, his en- around the, the enemies that come around him and the atrocities that he sees in the world and the, kind of the, the, the nations that are raging against God. He wants to see justice happen. And justice has been kind of a hot topic over the last year, hasn't it? Everyone is crying out for justice on a number of fronts. And in some cases, it comes from a very good and a right place. To see wrongs dealt with, to see those who have suffered abuses to be vindicated and cared for. Who's against justice, right? I think we all want that. But the problem is often that we have drifted so far from any objective foundation for justice that all these kind of new definition, new new concepts of what it means to act justly have emerged on the scene, bringing confusion and debate over how to actually carry it out. And we cannot simply adopt secular notions of justice that are divorced from the nature and the character of God Himself. If we want to begin to understand biblical justice, we have to start with God and His stable, unchanging character as the foundation and bedrock of what is right and what is wrong. And we look to Him, and we ultimately look to the cross as that place where God's perfect justice and His mercy meet, where He deals with sin once and for all, while at the same time offering pardon and forgiveness to the guilty. And we oftentimes may think that we have a better understanding of what justice is and how to carry it out. And we may actually get frustrated at times with God's approach because sometimes God's approach to justice is, seems slow. He is long-suffering towards rebels. But we have to remember that His justice is certain. It is sure. It is fixed in Him and it will be carried out against all who stand against His righteous standard and refuse to repent. And for David and for us, the righteous justice of God is a hope. It's a hope. The wrongs will be made right. And David again clings to that hope. The final call I think that David's psalm leads us to is is to once again realize that we have to learn to delight in praising God. We learn to delight in praising God. And this takes us back to where David started in verses 1 and 2. 
And this was his determination and his commitment as he reflected on the, the, the goodness of God and what God has done. This was what he had set out to do and to commit to. And he gives these four I will statements that I think form this interrelated cycle for us that I think ultimately describes worship. He says, I will give thanks. I will recount your deeds. I will be glad. And I will sing praise. I believe a life of worship embodies these things and repeats these things over and over. For David, he recognizes that a thankful heart is one that remembers and reflects on what God has done. Do you regularly recount in your life, in your family, with your kids, the works of God that you've seen over the years? Do you remember what He has done to produce a heart and a life of, of thankfulness, because conversely, a heart of discontentedness is rooted in one that focuses on what you think God hasn't done, what He has withheld from you, what your life is missing and what you don't have. But a thankful heart recognizes and reflects regularly on what God has done. And upon beholding and, and thinking about what God has done and even just who He is, David says that this response of, of joy actually is produced. It raises up in him, leading forth to what David uses as exultation. Not a word we often use, but the idea of just this, this triumphant boasting, this celebration of, of who God is. And finally, this declaration and commitment that he says, I will praise your name, O Most High. Later on in verse 13, David asks God to be gracious to him to rescue him from what he calls the gates of death. But he also gives the reason why he wants God to, to rescue him. He says, God, God, be gracious to me and save me for the purpose that I might, he says, recount all your praises and rejoice in your salvation. David realized that the greatest calling of his life was, was to ultimately terminate in worship and praise to God. And that wasn't because he, he thought that God actually needed his worship and praise to kind of boost his ego. But David began to realize and recognize the relationship between his, his praise of God and his own joy in his life. And I think this is so crucial for us to begin to, to understand and to grasp I think C.S. Lewis has, has, has helpfully brought these things together, the relationship between our joy and our praise or our worship. One of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis is this in his Reflections on the Psalms where he says this. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. Did you get what he said? That we delight to praise what we enjoy. When we find something enjoyable, we actually find it even more enjoyable to celebrate that thing. And that's because it's not merely just kind of this mere expression of it. But Lewis is saying and arguing that it actually completes the enjoyment of it. He says it is its appointed consummation. He says, it's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. He says, it's frustrating to have discovered a new author 
and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. Have you experienced that? Recently read this book, Peace Like a River. It was recommended from a couple of people, just a phenomenal book, a phenomenal read. Just kept telling people about it. I tell you it all, read that book. It's awesome. But me telling you is part of the enjoyment of that book, of the fascination and the awe of that, of that book. If I just read it and kind of kept it to myself, like, like it, it didn't fulfill its purpose. The joy didn't, wasn't expressed. We experience this in so many aspects of our lives, whether that's a great meal. There's an awesome restaurant in Old Town, uh, Penrose, that came out recently. They got this like sandwich that's like steak cut up, and it has uh, bacon marmalade on it. I don't know what bacon marmalade is, but it's phenomenal. It's so good. And when I, when I eat that, I don't just sit there kind of, you, know, you know, just straight-faced. It's like, mmm, mmm, this is good. That, that expression is, is the culmination of, of the enjoyment of it. Lewis goes on to say, that it's frustrating to come suddenly at the turn of a road upon some mountain valley or unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than a tin can in the ditch. He says, the Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify And in commanding us to glorify Him, God is inviting us to enjoy Him. And I think Lewis is spot on. And I think that in these Psalms, David is one that we see who is wrestling to find that true in his own life. Even amidst everything that he sees and the the challenging circumstances, he's fighting to realize and recognize that reality. That his praise and worship of God is tied to and born out of his enjoyment of God. And when we can begin to connect those things, that's where a life of true worship begins. It's not to say it's easy. Sometimes it's, it's hard to believe these things, right? It's hard to go out from here and actually, actually know them to be true and to experience them. This was true for David. You see, Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 are actually thought to be one unit originally. You might have seen a footnote in your Bible. It says that they form a, a continuing acrostic, that all the letters of the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew language start these different sections all the way through chapter 10. So 9 and 10 were actually probably one unit. I'm not going to preach chapter 10 for us this morning, but I just want you to point, look at verse 1. After declaring all these things that we've seen and reminding himself of all these things, he still cries out with these words saying, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Do you resonate with that? Do you feel like that sometimes? Do you, do you, do you fight to, to, to believe that God is there? And that's the challenge of our faith of, of what God has called us to, to be. That's why it is so important that we gather week in and week out. We come together to, to proclaim these same truths, the same gospel over and over again. To remind each other of it. To declare what God has done this week in our lives. 
as we share the way He's met us in His Word, the way that He has helped us through a challenging day, how He's brought restoration in a broken relationship. Each and every moment that we see and we reflect on God's goodness is a way that we can practice and embody a people that are constantly remembering who God is, not like the nations who forget God and run from Him. But this is the challenge of the song, to, to, to call us all to look to God as this fixed, permanent, steady, consistent guide for us. He is not moved. He is unchanging. He is constant for us. And as we fix our eyes on Him, as we continually come back to reflect on who He is, He remains for us that steady and consistent guide that will carry us through whatever circumstances, whatever challenges, whatever ups and downs that our life may bring. And this is, again, the challenge of the psalm, something we've seen over and over again. So will we fix our eyes on our steady and consistent God this week. Let's pray. Father, we do just come to you now, just thankful for your goodness to us. Thank you for sending Jesus to rescue us, to make us your own, that you, you sent him not merely just to grant us forgiveness, but to possess us as your people. Pray that you'd guide us this week to know and not just to know, but to actually believe these things in our lives. To believe that you are who you have said you are. That you have not changed. You have not abandoned us. You have not forsaken the broken and those who seek you. So let us fix our eyes on you this morning. Empower us through your spirit to live as your people dependent on you, trusting in your sovereign strength. We pray in the glorious name of Jesus. Amen.